Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessing, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gist, and we have a fascinating guest here from Flushing, Queens. Our, our historian, I call him the gatekeeper, uh, Mr. Byron C. Saunders. He will be on our show to discuss the history of the of the U.S. Open Stadium in Flushing, Queens. Mr. Saunders, are you available? Are you here? I am here, Leslie, and it's truly an honor to be a, a part of your show and a part of the history that you continue as a very important uh, element of our community in preserving our history, the legacy, the ancestors, your Grio. And you are very special in my in my presence, and, I, and to, for me to be a part of your story, oh my goodness, I am truly honored to talk about the history that I helped to as be a part of, and God bless us all for being able to understand the relevance of our history. And as I was sharing with you earlier, for eight years, I was the executive director of the Queens Historical Society. So my job as one of the five borough historical societies is, was to preserve and maintain the, the history of the 2.5 million people of Queens, New York City. We were located in downtown Flushing in the very historic Kingsland Homestead as part of the Flushing Freedom Mile, which we could talk about for quite some time, but we're going to focus on the Louis Armstrong Stadium as part of the United States Tennis Association complex where the U.S. Open uh, is now being played. And uh, obviously the Arthur Ashe Stadium and the Louis Armstrong Stadium are two of its most significant uh, courts uh, as part of the U.S. Open, which, by the way, for many who used to go follow the U.S. Open, was held at um, – Forest Park, Queens, New York City. But the stadium there became too small, and the USTA uh, located, which is really quite interesting because the stadium, the Louis Armstrong Stadium, was originally built as the Singer Bowl for the 1964 New York World's Fair. And it hosted special events and concerts afterwards. And it was renamed the Louis Armstrong Stadium in 1973, but closed the following year. And in the early 1970s, the United States Tennis Association was looking for a new place to host the U.S. Open as relations with the West Side Tennis Club in Forest Hill, which had hosted the tournament, were breaking down. So the USTA was initially unable to find a sufficient site, but the association's incoming president at that time, which was W.E. Hester, saw the old Singer Bowl from the window of an airplane. How about that? Flying into LaGuardia Airport, 
the old long rectangular stadium was heavily renovated and divided into two venues and becoming the square Louis Armstrong Stadium, with the remaining third becoming the attached grandstand with a seating capacity of about 6,000. Well, in 1997, the stadium was replaced as the U.S. Open's primary venue by the new Arthur Ashe Stadium. Armstrong Stadium was renovated again, with the top tiers of the seating being removed. And at that time, the stadium held close to 18,000 at its peak. But this was reduced to around 10,200 with the renovation, which also added a brick facade to match that of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Now, the stadium was officially demolished in October 2016, and this is where I stepped in. At that time, in 2016, I was the acting assistant director of the Louis Armstrong House Foundation, where Louis Armstrong lived in Corona, Queens, which happens to be right next adjacent to where the uh, uh, stadium and Flushing Meadows Park exists. And so as the assistant acting assistant director, I contacted the USTA as I knew that the Armstrong Stadium was about to be demolished and they had a grand celebration on the last day. It was right before the 2016 U.S. Open uh, that was to take place. And so they held the final matches there. They had a special closing event, which I was able to attend. I contacted the USTA on behalf of the, the Louis Armstrong uh, archives as assistant, acting assistant director, and I arranged to get the name off the building that they were about to demolish and put it into the Louis Armstrong archives. So it's now being housed over at Queens College where the archives is uh, uh, for the Louis Armstrong uh, uh, Foundation is as part of the house uh, and its archival collection uh, are part of the Queens College system. So history and the ability to preserve our history as you are doing with your stories on your show, Leslie, and as being a part of this history of New York City and Flushing, I was able to preserve that signage from the old building. And now, of course, the new 14,000-seat Louis Armstrong opened for the 2000 U.S. Open, and the new stadium features a retractable roof and is the largest number two stadium uh, at a Grand Slam site. And for the 2017 tournament, while construction was still going on, the new stadium, a temporary 8,800-seat stadium, was built on the site of the demolished ticket office and East Gate entrance uh, as what is known as parking lot B, close to the boardwalk ramp from the number seven LR Long Island Railroad trains and number seven subway stop right there at Flushing Meadows Park where people are able to come to the U.S. Open as they are flooding the, the gates and the stadium now to watch uh, hopefully where Serena will win her 24th Grand Slam event uh, this, this 2019. So it's, a, it's amazing and it's a joy to be a part of the history of a stadium that has meant so much to not just U.S. Tennis Association, but to us as African-Americans, to have the Arthur Ashe 
Grand Stadium, to have the Louis Armstrong Stadium, and to this year in 2019 to unveil the statue of uh, another great African-American tennis player in Althea Gibson. Wow. You said it perfectly. So um, there's a lot of history. You have Althea Gibson uh, yes. monument there. You also have Arthur Ashe. There was some controversy around his uh, monument yes. because yes. he is nude. Yes. Um, I was told that his family was very upset that they thought that his statue should depict him in his birthday suit. Right. Um, but on the high note, you know, just give us an idea of who participated in the U.S. Open. Well, it's interesting to note that as part of the 1964 New York World's Fair, imagine this, Flushing Meadows Park. And this is where the significance of that site itself, where not only – you have the U.S. Tennis Association's U.S. Open. You've got the Met, New York Mets Stadium, City City uh, Stadium, uh, named after the City Bank. It's right across the uh, pathway. You get off at the number seven stop right before you go into Flushing. So you've got all of this complex there in addition to Flushing Meadows Park. Now, here's where the history gets really interesting. Flushing Meadows Park, where the Queen's Museum of Art is located was actually the home of, yes, the United Nations. Imagine you have the United Nations, the table that they signed the document to create the United Nations in 1942 is sitting right there in Queens, Flushing Meadows Park, where the 1964 World's Fair was held, where you have the USTA, US Open held, where the Mets play, and the history of Flushing itself, New York City, is just amazing and filled with African-American history that most people just don't even know about. But to have the United Nations be, be, have it started there and before it moved to its site in Manhattan uh, is, is, is actually very significant because Queens, as one of the five boroughs of New York City, is home to over at least 54 different languages spoken. It's probably even more than that because you have the United Nations as a borough itself is representative of, of so many people of the world. And then to have the world come to us to watch tennis, at Arthur right. Ashe Stadium. Right. <laughs> I love your energy, Byron. Your energy is fascinating. You make me want to jump in my car and drive over there just to see this history. And when you mention United Nations, I think that the the players yes. who are participating in the U.S. Open, yes. who are of African descent, yes. represent an African version of United Nations. Um, let's run down some names. Naomi Osaka. Oh, my goodness. Now you have Japanese, think about the Japanese Haitian, a Japanese Haitian woman as the number one player in the world. Unfortunately, she got defeated the other day, but you're right. Taylor Townsend, a number former number one junior player in the world, okay? Yeah. You've got Serena, 
You've got uh, Madison Keys. You've got uh, name the names because you Sloan Stevens. That's right. Um, you've got Tiafa, who's from the D.C. area. There's the men's side, but the women are my goodness. The women have just filled the stadium. And then you've got uh, Monfils from France, who's still very much in the play. And so you 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 see the prominence and the athleticism of the African diaspora playing a very significant role on the impact of the world's best athletes playing on the world stage on the world stage that's exactly it it is a a wonderful place to visit and there's a globe there but before we go into the globe and now i know the significance of it by learning it from you but they also had the arthur ash day which i take my daughter to like every other year oh yeah Um, this is an opportunity for african-americans to visit Flushing Queens, to learn about Arthur Ashe and all the history surrounding um, stadium. Tell us a little bit about the Globe and Arthur Ashe and, and sure. more about what we can see as the attractions outside of the um, stadium. Well, because the United Nations and the World's Fair, that significant globe that you see and, and it's an iconic image that um, has been used in many many a movie most recently men in black one two and three <laughs> you know so and and, and it, it's not only significant because it as an uh, iconic piece of, of of architectural design and structure but it's also representative of the world itself the world coming to new york for the World's Fair, for the U.S. Tennis Open, for the United Nations. That globe in that park represents the world coming to the United States and being acknowledged globally in a site that's pretty much, I would say, is sacred ground now. Um, and, and, it is and, sacred ground. And to understand Flushing's impact. And, and when I shared this story with you today, earlier, you, you were like, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize it. I mean, think about this. 1652, 1658, you're flushing, which is in Dutch, formerly was known as Vlissingen, which means running water. So it became, once the English settled, and we know about the story of, of Henry Cabot and the story of how the English took over the settlement of Manhattan and, and ultimately all the surrounding lands, which Dutch settlements, um, in the, the Dutch trade industry back in the day, it became Flushing. Now, one of the most significant impacts of Flushing is the Flushing Remonstrance. The Flushing Remonstrance is the Magna Carta of religious tolerance in this country. And at that time in 1652-1658, you had the Dutch create the Flushing Meeting House, Quaker Meeting House, the old, one of the oldest religious structures in the United States, where they signed a document called the Flushing Remonstrance. The Flushing Remonstrance signed by all of the settlements and the religions that came to the United States in the 1600s, late 1600s, signed by the Dutch, Quakers, Puritans, 
even African church settlements that are known back then as Ethiopians, all of these signatories on a document which ultimately became part of the Bill of Rights for Religious Tolerance in this country in the United States, right in downtown Flushing. Quaker Meeting House is still open. Downtown Flushing, Lewis Latimer. Lewis Latimer. Lewis Latimer. Now, people may not recognize Lewis Latimer's name, but for those who know about the Con Edison and know about Edison's light bulb, well, guess what? Thomas Edison's light bulb was a short-term electric light bulb that had carbon, that had bamboo filament. So it was wet filament so that when the electricity was run through the light bulb, the filament that at that time was bamboo would light up, and it wouldn't last very long because the bamboo wet would last a little bit, but it would ultimately burn out very quickly. Well, it was Louis Latimer who was Thomas Edison's chief engineer, an African-American, a Renaissance man who created the carbon filament for the Thomas Edison light bulb. Louis Howard Latimer. Now, here's what – it gets even yeah. deeper than now, that. How, it, now, it, is, is, is his home open to the public? His home, home is – yes, Yes, you can visit, not only visit Louis Armstrong's house, which is in Corona, Queens, but you can also visit the Louis Latimer house in downtown Flushing. It's a historic landmark, and here's where it gets deep. How many of us recognize the Alexander Graham Bell telephone? Boy, oh boy, how many have seen the story with Don Amici, you know, and he did the wonderful Hollywood version, but... How many people actually know it was Lewis Howard Latimer, who was his chief engineer, who drafted the design for the Thomas Edison, I mean, for the Alexander Graham Bell telephone. It was Lewis Latimer who got the patent for the Mm -hmm. telephone. But because he designed it and took it down to the U.S. Patent Office, and it's Lewis Latimer who's being given credit for having designed the Alexander Graham Bell telephone. Now, you, that never came out in the movie because when Alexander Graham Bell was the movie, you have Don, Don Amici at the, at the one end of the telephone saying, because he spilled the acid on his lap, I need help, I need help, come help me, come, you know. He wasn't talking to a white man on the other end. His chief engineer who helped to lay the electric lines and the telephone system that Graham Bell got credit for was an African-American, Louis Howard Latimer. Wasn't that Henry Fonda, that place? Henry Fonda, that's right. You remember the movie. Well, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I taught electronics for nearly 20 years, and that movie was part of my curriculum. Yes. And um, I had to explain um, Granville T. Woods, who uh, designed That's right. um, Another African-American. That's right. Another African-American who was sued by Thomas Edison. That's right. And we have Louis Latimer, um, who was not depicted in the film, but they depicted Henry Fonda as being a Native American. Mm-hmm. You remember? So, Absolutely. Um, the history of the um, these stadiums, Flushing Queens, yes. is yes. incredible. It's a, a awesome jumping point. I'm learning so much. I did not know about the Ethiopian signing, the Magna yes. Carta. Yeah. Um, I have to do more research because Ethiopia is one place I want to visit because yeah. of the churches in the caves. That's right. And, uh, the Coptic and, Christians. And they have pilgrims. Yes, right. I'm looking forward to visiting that country in the very near future. 
Um, getting back now, the Arthur Ashe Day. Mm-hmm. Right, the Arthur right. Ashe Day. Now, when I, when I ran the Queen's Historical Society, every year for the U.S. Open, I'd get an invitation from the borough president's office, at that time it was Claire Schulman, to attend the celebratory Arthur Ashe Day, which is always the Saturday before the opening. And right. at that play, at that day, you get the celebrities who are out there able to play on the number one or number two courts. You get the stands filled with uh, all the celebrities who come to New York. And believe me, it is an event celebration that's second to none because I, I, I mean, if, if you've ever gone to the USTA, you'd probably know that you need to take out a second mortgage to just buy the food there because it's an expensive proposition. But it's an opportunity also on Arthur Ashe Day. It's free to the public. You get a chance to come in, walk the ground, see the best players in the world practicing on the courts, and intermingle with the, the celebrities as, a, as a, a, an amazing event honoring the Af- uh, African-Americans and the first African-American to win the U.S. Open. Other okay, than, now with that said, you, you yes. use the perfect word to describe it. It's sacred ground. Yes. And as such, I um, recognize it as sacred ground. And I petitioned and I pitched a story, a proposal to have a book signing, mm-hmm. um, a book fair um, at the Arthur Ashe event. And um, my uh, proposition was, you know, looked at as being uh, ridiculous. Yes. Now, just a few months ago or weeks ago, I read that Fortnite was a very big event, a video game, Mm -hmm. a violent video game. Very violent, yes. Was held on the Arthur Ashe Stadium, a sacred ground. And the winners were awarded close to $3 million. Yes, a 16-year-old, a 16-year-old won the $3 million. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, Leslie, because if we, go, if we begin to desecrate our sacred ground, mm-hmm. what is left to honor and protect the integrity, the spirituality because at the point at which, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all in favor of young people enjoying an opportunity to, to show their skills. But why do we put so much emphasis in honoring a young 16-year-old with $3 million to prove that uh, he could, in a participating in a competition of over 40 million people globally, to win a competition to showcase the skills of being a serial mass killer in a virtual reality game. So now you've got a three, you've given a 16-year-old $3 million to now become a role model for someone, for younger, 16 years and younger, to look up to this young man. And I'm not trying to take the money away from him, but look what he won it for. And then you've got every day, every week, we've got another incident of mass killings using guns. And at some point, we have got to stop by way of a moral imperative to stop honoring people who are going to end up at some point leaving the virtual world to get into the real world using tactics that they learned 
on a game that helped kill millions mm-hmm. of people in a virtual re- virtual world. It's 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 and you, you got to know that there's some kid out there who's like I'm going to be like him. Why? Because right. he just got he just won three million dollars, and right. three million dollars to do what? As winner of a game that virtually eliminates people on a, on a matrix and allowing them to do, be a mass murderer. Right. Got to stop. It's like going into a church. It's like going into a church, okay? Let's let's honor the sacred ground. It's like going into a church. Think about this. We've had the church incidents in Christ Church, New Zealand. We've had the incident at a mosque out in in the West Coast in Washington. We had the incident in Pittsburgh at at uh, the... the, um, but the place, uh, the synagogue, you had the incident in Charleston, South Carolina. I mean, and basically, young people or people disturbed going into these sacred houses and killing people en masse. Right. There is a connection. Right, so there's, something, there's something wrong with this picture. Yeah. You know, and, it's, and we, when we don't claim our history and we let other people claim it, yes. I mean, they know what they're doing. Yeah. They know the the history and the legacy of Arthur Ashe, of Billie Jean King, right? Of Armstrong, right? They know the era. That's right. So to have a a game, which uh, influ- which influences millions of people to shoot to shoot guns in this time, at this yeah. time in history, yeah. where uh, children have to be prayed for. On the Sunday before they uh, return back to school, exactly. You know, they have we have to lay hands on our children at church to pray for the teachers. Amen. And, uh, you know, it, it, when we were growing up, we never had that was not on our mind. We had to worry about no. what kind of lunchbox we were going to buy. You know, <laughs> right. lunchbox. Yeah, of course. They had to pray on us and say, you right. know, for your safety. Now they're selling backpacks of that are. Bulletproof backpacks, which have been proven, won't stop a bullet. Won't stop the AK-47s or the semi-automatics that are being used by the mass killers. That that won't stop it. And then you've got, just as the day of the last recent one in Texas, the day before a uh, Texas legislative uh, uh, piece of law that went into action, the day before... That was to take place in which you are uh, uh, allowing armed students on a college campus, teachers, you know, arming the teachers. On the day before that that legislation was to take place, you have another mass murder in Texas. And at some point, at some point, where do we draw the line and say enough is enough is enough? Because I'm really sick and tired of being able to – I can't pray any harder than I'm praying right now. I can't right. I can't have more tears that I'm shed right now that I've shed for all these families and victims. I can't and I think about my own kids, two African American kids, twenty two and twenty. And I think every day, Leslie, here's a statistic that cannot be denied. There are over three hundred and fifty million people in the United States. Leslie, do you know that there are over 300 million guns in the United States of America? And of those 300 million guns, over 50% of those guns are owned by less than 3% of the population. And as long as we keep 
adding more fuel to the fire by providing defense budgets with more and more and more money. Do you know where those guns are coming from? They are absolutely, by way of legislation, good or bad, giving defense contractors the opportunity to make more and more guns, which ultimately end up in the hands of those 3% that own 50%, over 50% of the 300 million weapons in the United States. And who is the target of those people who own guns? They are people of color. That has to stop. That's a statistic that's running rampant. And, and you can't deny how it's impacting on our, our nation and the moral compass for which our nation exists. And I know we don't have much time left on this segment, but Leslie, yeah. it's an honor and a pleasure to share these stories with your get with your listening audience. Please continue to do what you do. Now, let before you go, just give us yes. your contact information. I can be reached. I, you go, you you can Google my name, Byron C. Saunders, and I have my own pages uh, web pages of uh, contact Byron C. Saunders uh, the BCS experience hit me up friend me and I will make sure you get access to the information where I post every day African American history on this particular day it's all about our history people remember Leslie you and I are the new underground railroad express where we make Thank stops, so we make stops in your neighborhood, all aboard to freedom and to freedom <laughs> land. All right. Thank you, Mr. Saunders. We'll be in touch. Yes, and we enjoy are. the rest of the day. Yes. And God bless you. All right.